to the Pave the Way podcast, a joint initiative with Rahagiri Foundation and the National Institute of Urban Affairs, where I, your host Akash Basu, speak with mobility experts and people with interesting ideas around the globe on all kinds of ideas and issues surrounding sustainable mobility and transport planning. On today's episode, we have the honor of speaking with sustainable urban transport expert Daniel Moser. Not that Daniel necessarily needs an introduction, but I thought I'd provide one anyway. He's an urban planner and sociologist slash political scientist by education and holds a track record of nine plus years in transportation, urban development and international and national politics. He was formerly the head of the Transformative Urban Mobility Initiative and is now working as a senior transport specialist at the World Bank. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Daniel on how Indian cities can focus on improving our non-motorized transport infrastructure. So without further ado, how are you, Daniel? Hi, um, I'm good. Thank you. Um, I'm very good. Yeah, it's great having you on. And um, I'm really excited to speak with you and provide I feel some real value on the subject to our listeners. So uh, let's just get started. Maybe you could just start by giving the listeners an idea of just how unsustainable our current car usage or vehicle usage is in our urban cities when it comes to emission levels and energy demand. Uh, yes, that, that's a very good start. So looking at at the world, uh, looking at uh, the way we move in the world, we are seeing that more and more people move to cities. That's uh, that's a very well-known fact. So the world is urbanizing rapidly. And looking at uh, transportation, uh, we are seeing that many trips are uh, done on roads. So transport emissions uh, really are to a lion's share uh, emissions from road transport. And a lot, in an ever larger share of those emissions are happening in urban areas. Um, if you look at, uh, the emissions of, uh, a typical car, an urban bus, uh, has maybe 25% of the emissions per passenger. Uh, a bicycle, uh, is, is even, even better. Obviously it has almost zero emissions. And, uh, if you, if you look then at trajectories towards electrifying, uh, vehicles, which is, uh, an option, obviously in, um, urban areas as well. Um, then you see that the speed of electrification, which you can achieve to, uh, to reach large scale electrification in the whole fleet, this speed of electrification is, uh, actually much quicker. Uh, in a bus fleet, for example. So if we look at the alternative uh, options and the speed in which we can decarbonize certain transport modes, then uh, typically uh, large fleets which are owned uh, or operated by one company or one governing body, then uh, those are quicker to electrify, less vehicles also which carry more people and they're already much more uh, efficient, uh, polluting much less. So really, uh, the car is the problem child when we look at carbon emissions in the transport sector. Absolutely. In a country like India, obviously, uh, I recently traveled to the UK and getting from A to B in the UK using public transport or walking or cycling is very simple. 
you know, there is almost, there's, there'll always be an option very close to you and people understand that as well. Um, in India, that's not really the case. So having worked in so many countries and seen so much change, how would you say we go about moving from in our urban cities, from ones that prioritize vehicles to ones that prioritize non-motorized transport, pedestrianization and public transport? Yes, this is a very, very excellent uh, question, actually. Actually, I think this is a key question. Uh, and I'm glad that you come to this key question so early. So let me just reiterate, really. So what we know what the problem is. The problem is basically that emissions in the transport sector, carbon emissions are too high, air pollution is too high. We know how to attribute this problem. The problem is mainly rooted in excess private car usage. Now, we also know what the solution is. We know that we can achieve much higher quality of life with less car usage, a more compact urban form, that, which is called gentle density uh, in the urban planning circle. So the kind of density uh, which creates a very livable uh, feeling, but also shows strong positive uh, co-benefits on health, on uh, regional economic performance, or many other other um, indicators as well. So we know what we want. So now the question is, how do we get there? And that that's exactly what I think the, the cult, where the culprit lies. Uh, so what we're seeing is that now there are multiple efforts towards moving forward towards this kind of livable, more compact, hyper-local city, if you want to call it like that, which drastically reduces your car dependence. So that, that's, I, I think, where we have to go also, is that when we look at um, how are people moving, we see is, what we see is that if we make it as easy, as convenient, and as affordable to move with sustainable transport modes, such as uh, cycling, walking, public transport, then people choose those sustainable modes. So that is the key also where our policymakers are, are needed to act basically is to making cycling, walking and public transport much more easier, much more accessible, as large part of population as possible. And that's uh, really how we are going to achieve uh, this goal. That's a good point. In India, you know, there's, there's what we called an elitist bias that protects those in cars and takes away space from walkers, cyclists and bus users. We say this because the attitude around the country is more about more car based. It's more geared towards using cars. If, you know, there is, there's not the desire to move towards pedestrianization or hyperlocal or just more pedestrianized and more community-based cities is not really there. How do we go about changing the general attitude in our urban cities to desire um, these other modes of transport that are non-motorized? Uh, that, that's, that, that's right. So what, what we see is, and I think you can observe this, if you are walking down the street as a street where you live, and it might be, uh, if you look at over the years, You'll see that more and more uh, cars are coming to the streets in terms of traffic, in terms of parking. And that is due to rising motorization rates. So more people own cars, more people drive cars, and you have more, pe more cars standing around and parking. Now, is anyone asking for permission for these cars to be driven on that particular road? 
or to be parked on that particular road. Really, no one does. So it just happens. It's just, it's just uh, a dynamic where basically um, our public space, which we own collectively as a society, is governed, governed by survival of the fittest, which is, in the sense, the car, which is the most biggest and the most powerful uh, vehicle and, uh, or the most powerful uh, transport mode. And that is basically uh, governing also without any rule, without any regulation, the way we attribute space in cities. Now, what we know is creating streets or creating uh, transport opportunities, which are attractive, they need to be low stress. So, for example, if you want people to cycle, and if you want more than the typical 5%, maybe a max uh, of young males uh, cycling, then you need to create low stress networks for cycling. And you only achieve this by good governance, by strengthening really uh, the rule of the government and by uh, attributing strong uh, regulations towards the usage of our streets so that the lawlessness of cars ever approaching on public space and uh, filling uh, our commonly owned public spaces can be regulated and can be scaled down. So that's something which we see in the cities which are most successful, in which, by the way, are year after year are voted the most livable cities in the world. That's what we see is happening, is that the governments in those cities are able to regulate public space in a way that they can reduce the excess use of space by cars and give space towards uh the more sustainable transport mode, walking, cycling, as well as public transport. So those modes can work. They need low stress. They need to be uh, free of cars, which produce traffic jams. Uh, so you need to have a good network of walking, cycling, and public transport, a low stress network. And that's only possible if you reattribute, redistribute space towards those modes. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting point. I was reading recently um, just about Netherlands and Copenhagen, um, the largest cycling cities in the world. And there were, I, I read a few pieces on how they weren't always like this. Netherlands and Copenhagen in years ago, I mean, 1960s, 1970s, they were not people-centric cities. They were car-centric cities or at least didn't have proper pedestrianization policies in place. Some of the things I've learned, of course, is, is, is initiative, right? I, I spoke with Dario Hidalgo recently. And we are talking about the value of a BRT system for any listeners. That's the bus rapid transport system. And he talked about how the mayor of Colombia at that time, Enrique Peñalosa, was integral to making it happen. It required initiative from the top. And that is the only way these things happen. So I think that was a good point. That's something you said as well. We need initiative to create this space for people. And if the space is created, you know, it will be used in the right way. What other lessons uh, outside of this do you think India can learn from these cities that were able to transform themselves over the last couple, few decades? Yes, I'd like to add uh, one point to the argument Dario presented, which you, which you uh, now reiterated. Is Yes, you, on the one hand, you need the leadership on the top. So you need to have a city leader or a regional uh, governor who wants to pursue the goal of sustainable transportation. And adding to this, a further element which is really important and which we can observe is how are these changes actually playing out? So that's where government officials 
which working which are working in in the relevant authorities, uh, for example, in the transport authority, have to are very very crucial in terms of making this happen because the the actual process basically um, walking the talk. This is happening, and this has to. This is basically tasked to the government officials. So, if you have, uh, and and that's, I think, something where entrepreneurial uh, government officials are very, very crucial. If you have uh, government officials which are able to negotiate between different stakeholders, which are able to detect opportunities for action, uh, which are able to act in an agile manner then you will be much more successful. So it's not only uh, the leadership, but it's also uh, the strength of the institutions and quality of entrepreneurial uh, government, which is necessary in terms of uh, bringing this uh, to life. So that's also what we have seen in, in Bogota, which we have seen, in, um, which we have seen also in other places where uh, we have uh, observed these longer term transformations. So, this is this is very crucial, and I believe uh, India, with a history of of a very uh, good uh, and strong governmental institutions, uh, as well as a history of uh, entrepreneurship, is very well positioned uh, to act on this. You have to where where I think we can learn from what's happening in in the best cities of the world is that you should start uh, really. That's really really important. You should not wait for the best and, and and most complete plan, but really the transformation towards a more livable city with more sustainable transport. And really, if in order to achieve more livable cities, sustainable transport is key. So to get there really is a step-by-step uh, process. So there's no one silver bullet, there's no one solution, one plan which can fix it all. It's really starting at the place where you feel that you have an opportunity and then go from there. So step by step over years, uh, you can achieve quite a remarkable uh, transformation. And really, I think that the ambition has to be grand, but the action has to be opportunistic and step by step. I think that's a very good point. There is no one sure stop solution to something like transport because it is such an intricate and complicated network in any urban city. I think we made, you made some good points on how the government has to approach it, which is it almost, it does government and other organizations, they have to approach it with an almost entrepreneurial spirit, which is it is new. You have to invent and you have to create and it's, you know, to make these public spaces, you need a lot of initiative from, you know, all stakeholders involved. I wanted to ask on your, on what you think, is there real value to things like activism and protesting maybe when you know you aren't quite happy with the way things are let's say policy or transport policy wise what is the value of protesting and activism along with initiative that needs to be there when considering transport policy the key question now comes is how do public consultations look like and how is the how does the inclusion of people in decision making look like and and there's something which is uh, rampant in some countries is that every small and tiny change which is being made in, in a city, sometimes every tree, every, every, each and single parking spot is to be discussed in public consultations. And that's not the way to go about it. Absolutely not. So the way to go about it is really getting a mandate or uh, a change, uh, which 
which then is uh, is taken through by a government and and that is uh, that there can be consultation sometimes uh, and that's fine but we must not forget that there's no consultation at all when it comes to how cars are taking up eating up our public space and the street space so if we then on the contrary to scale that back and to make our cities more livable and and more sustainable require a cumbersome public consultation process where every step has to be negotiated, then we are slowing us down unnecessarily. So in order to to scale the change, there's no other way than to get a mandate towards that direction and then uh, and, and then move ahead. And obviously that's going to be checked and discussed and, and, and scrutinized. And that's totally fine, but it consultations should not take uh, the space or public consultations should not take the space of decision making uh, when a government is elected and is uh, is moving forward towards uh, making certain uh, choices. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I had asked the question initially because I was reading up on Netherlands and um, there around the 1960s, I believe it was it was fierce activism. There was a movement called the Stop the Kinder Mode. And there was a cyclists union formed around that time. And the cyclists union now has tens of thousands of members. And these protests played a big part in transforming the city at that time, or at least in transforming attitudes, you know, protests are also something that make it on the news. People will know, like this is regular people. You are sending a message to the government or whoever it is, whose policies you're not agreeing with, but the the message gets out there. And sometimes that's necessary. And um, now look, I, I think that's uh, basically the path of change uh, might be different in any any country. Uh, so some countries go in uh, or some cities go in, in a certain direction, others go in another direction. And it's really, I think, something where we, which has to be figured out uh, and which is a it's a dialogue which happens uh, and is culturally sensitive. Mm-hmm. So I believe uh, I, I believe strongly that. Um, that there might be differences in how change is achieved uh, in specific countries or local contexts. So I think what might work or what works in one place might not work or in another place. But there are many different ways towards uh, going that direction. I think what's important is that we get that we are very clear um, as uh, people working in the space, uh, trying to achieve more sustainable transport and more livable cities. Is that we know what that we know what are the best practices. We know what are the instruments towards positive change for better cities, and that we then can apply those principles and uh, these uh, instruments to the different local contexts which are uh, which are given to us. And I think that there's a the big value towards uh, looking at examples. And Paris uh, in recent years, for example, has shown great strides uh, when it comes, for example, how to quickly change our transport system, uh, which is, I think, uh, one, one point which I also want to uh, to make here is that we can change traditional planning cycles. So what we are seeing and what we have seen uh, around the world uh, with pop-up bike lanes, pop-up bus lanes, tactical public spaces, these are all ways of going forward more ambitiously mm-hmm. in a way which is uh, low cost 
but fast. So applying uh, principles of um, iterative design towards our public space and toward towards the city. So I believe that that is a, a very, very good way towards accelerating change in a city because you end up testing solutions faster without uh, really uh, necessitating a, a, a long-term commitment in the beginning, but just trying things out, testing them uh, in the real world, and then moving forward uh, if, if things work and transforming those to more permanent uh, solutions or moving on and, uh, and, and scaling up those solutions in other places. Mm -hmm. I think you've highlighted well how it's important and it's useful to look at best practices, but it's not necessarily viable or the right option given what your locality is. Such as, I mean, just in India itself, whilst protesting and fierce activism may play its role in a country like the Netherlands, that is not something that would really work in India. The government, you know, not as tolerant to protesting. So it's not really a path we should take. And another line, giving space to pedestrians and cyclists is important. But in our streets, in my opinion, anyways, we work more on street redesign because some of our intersections are very unsafe. Some of the walkways are just broken up. It just, you know, the space is not the problem. It's how the space is made. It's we have technically kept space for pedestrians. We have technically kept place for cyclists, but they're not well built. There are no demarcations. Even our BRT system that we tried to set up in 2008, you know, we just, we knew what the best practices were, but we didn't implement them properly because we did not take, you know, the typography of the city into account. You know, you have to run the BRT through a main busy city. You know, you have to run it through where people want. While in some other countries, it can go through the outskirts. In Delhi, if it doesn't go through the middle, people don't get from A to B at all. So I think, yes, I think it's it's a, it's important to understand um, that one, there is no sure shot, one-stop solution to sustainable transport and even looking at it locally. And when we look at countries individually, you have to take your the current climate in that country into account before looking at transport policies. But looking at best practices helps. And especially when moving forward, because we are trying to, you know, as we as we move forward, we need governments, we need organizations to be more flexible in looking at new solutions, in even coming up with new solutions as we go forward in sustainable transport policy. I had a couple more questions, which are a little less to do with the India currently, but more about stuff that I've been reading online, just stuff that's being done by, you know, terms that are being put out there by big uh, development organizations and banks. So I wanted to actually get firstly your view on the 15 minute hyperlocal city. Obviously in India, it's something that's unimaginable to us, but are there countries or cities that are close to getting there? And do you think it's a viable way of looking at public? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. That is, that, that's totally a reality in, in many parts of the world. And I'm, I'm also very sure that this is a reality in many, many Indian cities, uh, to be very fair. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the 15 minute city is, is a great term, which uh, can give which gives an understanding of what is the benefit uh, for people when transport system is well planned and built uh, with sustainability in mind and livability in mind. Now, the, if you look at the, the concept of the 15-minute city and the way it was, uh, was uh, written uh, and conceived uh, with 
then I, I do think that there's a misconception a little bit towards can we really have a mega city or uh, let's say a city above 1 million inhabitants where everything is in reach in 15 minutes? That doesn't sound uh, doable and it's not. Well, what, what we can achieve is we can create neighborhoods which enable us to do everything we need to do uh, as basically uh, reach uh, all uh, the opportunities which we want to see uh, and which we want to uh, to reach in our daily life in 15 minutes walking or cycling. So what is that? So that's basically a, a city where we have local uh, shopping opportunities. That's a city where... Um, where we have uh, local health facilities, uh, where we have schools, uh, where we have playgrounds, parks, green spaces, uh, sports facilities. Uh, we do have affordable housing, uh, housing diversity, so that different uh, uh, socioeconomic groups are able to be to live there. The cities which are, are built uh, with walkability and, and cycling networks in mind Obviously, uh, also local employment opportunities, uh, which is super crucial uh, because this is one of the key destinations daily. But let me add to this: a fifteen uh, that that's a, that's a hyper local neighborhood, and uh, a city built of those hyper local or fifteen city neighborhoods can uh, can look like a beehive of fifteen city neighborhoods next to each other. But those neighborhoods have to be connected in a way so that. There are there's there are opportunities which are obviously not in this 15 minute radius. Uh, there's no way of prescribing a person to a specific job in the specific neighborhood that person lives in. Mm -hmm. So what is the connector between all these uh, small beehives? The connector is a high performance public transport system. This is the backbone of a 15 minute city, and uh, you you might not uh, be 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 able to reach every destination in your city. In 15 minutes, but what we have seen through psychological surveys uh, in different countries around the world is that uh, duration or commute of 45 minutes, roughly, is basically what many people accept uh, as as a daily commute and uh, find acceptable. So, if we can design a city where we mix employment opportunities, education opportunities, uh, residential areas in a way that we can um, first create neighborhoods where most of the daily uh, necessities are within reach within a short walk, but then all the other ones are available within a commute by public transport, then we're doing the right job. And it's, as said earlier, it's, it's a piecemeal approach. So a city will not transform from a dispersed, uh, sprawling, uh, low density, low quality of life city towards a 15 minute higher density, gentle density, uh, mixed use, mixed income, high opportunity, high livability city in, in a short time frame. But it's, it's a goal towards to aspire and we can move towards that goal if we set up our policies accordingly. I guess it's another great example of requiring patience when these things happen. It's not, it's going to take a long time. And I, I think you explained it very well, uh, because I think the idea of 15 minute city, when you read just the initial definition, seems too good to be true. 
But the way you put it out there, which is it has to be like a network of neighborhoods that try to make daily lives and daily commutes in a 15 minute radius. And if we do that, if we move towards that, then we can have, you know, not the mega cities, but, you know, having it done through these individual smaller areas, we can move towards making our cities more hyper-local. Yes. Um, and and give me, let me give you one example. If you look at uh, Rio de Janeiro, um, Brazilian city, it's a, it's a vast city uh, and, and it's huge. But look at some of those neighborhoods, look at the, the most famous neighborhoods of Rio de Janeiro, Copacabana or Ipanema. These neighborhoods are basically 15-minute neighborhoods. Um, I think that those neighborhoods are set up uh, in a way that you can basically do most of the things you want to do in daily life living in those neighborhoods. Um, there's also, I believe, for example, in, in, in Mumbai or Bombay, you have the neighborhood of uh, Kulaba. Uh, a peninsula uh, neighborhood, I think that aided a little bit the development as this neighborhood is on a peninsula, the development towards a, a compact neighborhood. And it's a, a pretty old uh, neighborhood also looking at this the city's history. But also this neighborhood is very walkable. You have many different opportunities in that neighborhood. Uh, so it's uh, a 15-minute neighborhood. But I think one, one point here, which is very important and which also needs to be repeated is that just because those neighborhoods might be better neighborhoods, um, which are more upscale, it doesn't mean that the concept of the 15-minute city is only a concept for upscale neighborhoods. So uh, that's, I think, a very important message to city makers is that designing uh, a 15-city neighborhood is is something which uh, can happen and should happen all around the city. And in fact, it should happen first in uh, in, in neighborhoods where uh, we don't find uh, the employment opportunities at the moment, where the education opportunities are not good, uh, where we uh, do have little opportunities uh, to do shopping, to buy groceries. So these neighborhoods which currently lack the opportunities and which are many times the less uh, privileged neighborhoods in the city, they should uh, receive basically priority in terms of uh, being transformed towards higher opportunity, more livable 15-minute neighborhoods. Wow, that's a very interesting point. Cities that are moving towards being hyper-local, is that, is that the general process to look at uh, maybe neighborhoods that don't have as much opportunity or slightly lower-income neighborhoods? Are they the ones to focus on? Is that how we address hyper-locality if we want to achieve it? Yes, you can, uh, you can address it that way. You, well, one, one important point here is that looking at what's happening in the world is not, is not something that we are seeing really. I mean, cities in the, cities around the world are not moving towards hyper locality or in 15 minute concept. It's a very laudable concept. It's a very popular concept at the moment. But what we are seeing, uh, what is actually happening is that the uncontrolled growth of cities is accelerating and we do see more small and less opportunities in the parts of cities which are built around the world right now. Interesting. Um, you're currently resided in the USA. You said the USA, you're telling me earlier that the US is a very convenient place to live. How would you say its transport system is and maybe something like hyperlocality? How easily can you reach your daily needs 
and the average person can reach their daily needs. Well, I cannot speak for the whole of the US. I haven't obviously seen every every place. What I see is that there are some great opportunities in the US uh, in terms of, for example, uh, street design, uh, the traditional way of the way uh, streets are being built in the United States of America is uh, that streets are relatively wide. Uh, we have relatively wide sidewalks as well. So there's ample space to walk, which is great. Uh, there's, uh, but there's also ample street space. Now, uh, when we move towards uh, redistributing uh, street space in, in Europe, for example, that fierce fight uh, as a space is limited. I believe that's also something which we uh, see in India and uh, in places where street space is just uh, limited. And that is uh, something where the U.S. Uh, has a great opportunity uh, in terms of redistributing street space, which is there towards more sustainable uses. So that's, that's something, uh, which we, uh, can see, which is great. It's also very, very fascinating to observe is, and that's not a trend which can be observed everywhere in the country, but certainly in a, a good number of places is how this, the urban fabric is changing in U.S. cities. So traditionally, uh, and this is very well known that U.S. cities in many parts are relatively low, low density. And sometimes also very single use. So you, zoning uh, laws require that different functions are distributed across different parts of the city, which obviously increases the need to travel. Now, the zoning is not something which is easily uh, changed, but uh, what we're seeing is that uh, cities are moving towards higher density configurations. Um, and especially in the urban core, uh, we do see these higher density configurations uh, come up. So residential uh, apartment buildings are being constructed. That's something which is very visible in, in Washington, D.C., which I, I think is also uh, relatively far up in terms of uh, constructing new um, new housing uh, in the U.S. So that that is a, a gradual change uh, in terms of uh, how the city is being used. So you see a redistribution of street space for cycling. Uh, you see already great uh, walking facilities. Now you get the density also, so people start using those spaces. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a, it's a gradual change towards a more dense uh, urban core. Um, this changes uh, might not be reflected so much in the in the sub suburbs or uh, further out of the, the urban core, but the urban core in at least some cities is changing. And I think that's a great example, uh, which we can take also and apply in, in other contexts as well, is that typically the urban fabric, if you look, for example, at European cities, is very stagnant. It's slowly changing and the city mm -hmm. grows organically, but the way uh, a city's fabric is uh, is laid out is not not changing very quickly, and and that still applies to the street network in the U.S., which is obviously remaining uh, as it is. But uh, the buildings, uh, so the the buildings are moving, being built higher, which allows higher density uh, in the urban core, which then in turn creates positive effects on the livability and the attractiveness of those neighborhoods. I had uh, spoken with Andy Singer. I'm not sure if you know, but he's a political cartoonist from Minnesota and he was on this podcast as well. I was talking to him about the the current condition of US streets and 
he uh, he didn't have a very good view on it like we did make some parallels between india and the us and he was talking about how roads have been widening for a while which is to make space for more cars you know he talked about the idea of a paving moratorium like just mm-hmm. shop building space for cars if it's even if you don't go the other way which is you know make more space for cyclists and pedestrians as you know there is still we still have he said there's still adequate space but they keep widening it and that's creating a lot of you know just issues and congestion and it it continues to take away space from cyclists and pedestrians do you think now the us is at least even if ever so gradually moving in the right direction um i mean i do think that there are, that we can detect uh, elements of change in the right direction in okay. in the us um mm-hmm. and that that is a reappreciation of uh cities as livable spaces also if you look at the attractiveness uh so the aspiring elements of how people want to live then we see a reemergence of urban life mm-hmm. as a core element of really of how people want to live so people want to go out people want to go to restaurants and bars they want to uh, mingle and have a good time and that's not possible in the suburbs which are basically dead so there is a change uh, happening and there's also uh, a growing understanding among urban planners among politicians as well that uh, highways for example are urban highways are not beneficial to urban life that transport needs to follow the avoid shift and proof principle so a uh, avoid means basically creating access uh without the need to travel uh, shifting towards more sustainable modes such as walking cycling and public transport and then uh, improving so achieving higher efficiency with uh in every mode of transport and that these principles being uh, recognized the detection of uh some of the problematic elements in how transport is being done at the moment as well as the general appreciation of uh, urban living mm-hmm. Uh, on a broader scale, I think are positive indicators towards a shift. But uh, is this broad scale uh, shift? Is this a ma- massive and uh, fast or quick enough shift in terms of reaching our climate goals? That's a different question. Let's hope so, but it's a tough question to answer. So, as my final question, uh, this podcast is called the Paved the Way Podcast, and so based on let's say your understanding of India but let's say a city which hasn't quite begun to prioritize pedestrian infrastructure how would you let's say as we've discussed a lot these 1% gradual increases can make big differences in the long term obviously transport doesn't work that way but just as an interesting question how what would you say is the first thing that a country you know big or small mega city or not should do when looking to like let's say a mega city or a city or ones that face congestion what is the one step that you they should start with when looking at paving the way forward positively that's a very very good question i am afraid i do think there's no one thing which you can do um and if i would say if i put out one thing then now then it might not be applicable um in many places <laughs> but i think there are a couple of things where uh which have shown to induce a positive uh positively reinforced cycle uh basically a virtuous cycle uh, towards more sustainable transport mm-hmm. and one one such thing is uh, for example creating a high quality public transport network that is the backbone of 
of the city. That that needs to be uh, backed up with the according um, sustainable urban transport plan, which uh, regulates the building activity or the development of housing and commercial activities in the city. But a high quality network of public transport really can be conserved as a backbone and is fundamentally a no regret investment uh, mm-hmm. for uh, for a city. So that is that is something which uh, can be a core element and which requires a substantial investment also from from the government side. So it, it's something which uh, should be done, and especially in fast growing cities, this is uh, a core element which uh, needs to be in place in order to allow the densities and the the connection to opportunities which a city needs to be be to be prosperous. And then there are other elements, uh, which are, uh, obviously, which can push forward. Uh, and that's elements on, on active mobility. Um, that's parking management. There's the, then you can do, uh, things on, on creating more mixed use, uh, neighborhoods when you build new neighborhoods, uh, mixed use, mixed income neighborhoods. So there are uh, many elements which you can push forward as well. But, uh, I think it really, again, it depends on the way a city is at the moment, the way the city presents its opportunities. But investing in active mobility, investing in public transport, uh, building mixed use, mixed income neighborhoods, these are really not elements where any city will regret their action moving forward. I think you've hit the nail on the head with how we should potentially look at improving the transport policy here. It maybe does not apply to all countries that need help in the area. But for India, the demand for public transport, people that use public transport that is not adequate enough or reliable enough or affordable enough is immense. You know, building a good public transport network could help our congestion and emission levels so greatly. And then secondly, active mobility is so important. You know, we have, there are so many cyclists in this city, but they have to share the roads with cars. And in a city like India, where, you know, the road safety on the roads, when even driving a car, you need to be a little more aware than other countries because Indian roads are not particularly safe. The cycle on them, most people just wouldn't let their kids or their friends or their family cycle to work because you're just not safe. So even investing in something as simple as a dedicated bike lane for cyclists could just begin the transformation process. So I think... You made some good points in the Indian context that could work. You're right. Okay. Thank anyway, you. I think that's all my questions. It has been an honor speaking with you. You've provided a lot of value when it comes to how we should design our cities, what the future mobility should be, how to design climate-friendly transport and just the transport world in general. I would be inclined to believe that you will continue to add value and knowledge as we move on in the coming years and hoping that this is just the beginning. And um, yes, thank you for thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks again, and looking forward to it. Yeah, thanks. Take care.